Essentially, we don't want to be taking positions, but we want our people to be taking positions. We don't want people to feel like they need to check their partisanship at the door. Partisanship is good. It's what the country's built on. We need competition in the marketplace of ideas, but we need to play on the field, not try to blow up each other's tour buses, so to speak. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this podcast, in addition to tracking progressive leaders and groups, I'm interested in those who are working to improve our democracy from a less partisan perspective, including those with ideas and efforts to bridge our political divides. In that vein, I had a really good talk with Kieran O'Connor, who is the chief marketing officer at a group called Braver Angels. He's also the host of the Braver Angels podcast. Braver Angels is a nonprofit which runs workshops, debates, and events designed to bring liberals and conservatives together, a substantial challenge in this polarized time. They use methodology developed by a marriage therapist who works with couples on the brink of divorce. Kieran is a former campaign staffer for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton who joined Braver Angels early in their development. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Kieran O'Connor and Braver Angels. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Kieran, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I currently serve as the chief marketing officer for Braver Angels, which is a national nonprofit that works to bring liberals and conservatives together with the goal of depolarizing America. I previously worked in and around democratic politics, starting on the 2012 Obama campaign, where I worked as a digital communications staffer and ending on the 2016 Hillary campaign, where I was a speechwriter and a communications advisor. Well, you've definitely experienced some of the polarizing part of the world in those campaigns. Kieran, where did you grow up? I grew up in uptown Manhattan. Where did you go to school? I went to Bank Street School for Children for elementary, and Hunter College High School for high school. And then on to college? On to college at Duke University. Yeah. And what did you study at Duke? I majored in public policy. What did you learn there that you found that you apply in your career? At Duke, I worked on the Duke Chronicle as a reporter and editor covering politics and current events and was sort of my initial foray into the world of media and politics. One of the cool things about working for the Duke Chronicle was that people would take your call. It had a fairly wide circulation, and we got a lot of interesting speakers coming to campus. And so as a relatively green reporter, I was able to interview and write about influential political figures who were shaping the discourse for better or worse. And I was deciding between journalism and politics as a career, and I was essentially funneled into the latter because of my love and admiration for Barack Obama, which led me to intern on his 2012 campaign, which led me to take a semester off college to work through the election, to see it through, 
beat Mitt Romney, get President Obama reelected, and that then sort of cemented my further path into progressive causes, democratic politics, and campaign work. That time on the Obama reelect, what did you do? What was the what was the draw beyond the candidate himself? I was on the digital rapid response team and I was charged with writing a lot of content, blog posts, fact checks, and social media. The primary goal of which was to defend President Obama's record and vision from attacks and mischaracterizations. And the second goal was to hold Mitt Romney accountable, but also to fact check false claims and drive what was termed contrast messaging. In 2012, the Obama campaign was very effective in portraying Mitt Romney as essentially an out-of-touch plutocrat. Romney didn't do himself very many favors with some of his remarks, notably the remark about 47% of Americans being takers with the rest being makers. But on the digital rapid response team or the truth team, as it was publicly known, we did a lot of fact checking and we did a lot of criticizing Mitt Romney to reporters in the public. Do you feel like that campaign was fairly fought between the two sides? Do you think, you know, that it contributed to more polarization? What do you think the the greater effects were of the work that you were a little part of? It's funny. Sometimes I joke that we cried wolf in 2012. I mean... Romney looks pretty darn good in comparison, doesn't he? Yeah, to my mind, I mean, put ideology and policy aside, I think Mitt Romney is deeply committed to serving the country and viewing himself as a public servant. A lot of people would say Trump is also committed to serving the public. I would argue that he is committed to representing his people in opposition to others who are opposed to him, which is a different thing. But I don't know. I mean, in 2012, I think the campaign knew it was facing a tough reelection. You know, unemployment was still like 7 or 8%. The message testing told us that Mitt Romney was vulnerable to the criticism that he didn't care about ordinary working people, that he was out of touch, his time at Bain Capital, doing leverage buyouts, you know, essentially made him a a representative of the elites who uh, were undermining the well-being and futures of working people, particularly in the Midwest. And so I think there was a conscious decision to pursue that narrative very effectively. Was it entirely fair? I don't know. It was an argument but it was a strategic argument that was meant to drive a caricature that I'm not necessarily, especially in retrospect, actively and accurately uh, captures who Mitt Romney is and, and how he thinks about public service. Oh, of course, it's not the job of a political campaign to exactly accurately characterize your <laughs> opponent. It's, it's a exactly. complicated thing. And a lot, I guess, I, I wonder if you worked with Teddy Goff there. The reason I ask you is because I know he was there and then at Precision, and I saw that your career led you to Precision. But what was the connection, How did and how did you end up in that next position? Yes, Teddy Goff is and continues to be a dear friend and mentor of mine. On the 2012 Obama campaign, he was the digital director, sort of the, the young gun who helped usher in a new age of digital fluency and competency for democratic campaigns that was begun in in 2008. And so I learned a lot working from him. And then after I graduated college, worked for him and a couple of his partners at a consulting firm called Precision Strategies, which works to move action on a lot of progressive causes and, and democratic campaigns. How was that time for you? It was great. It was my second job. My first job was helping Obama get reelected. So I was kind of spoiled, sort of hard to match that. But as a professional gig, 
it exposed me to a very broad range of projects and clients from the corporate to the nonprofit to the government sectors. And so I think I learned a lot about how various organizations operate and how strategic communications, digital analytics, and mobilization campaigns can help them achieve their goals, whether that's to get someone elected or to reach a new audience or to better target their messaging or to reach people more effectively with advertising, et cetera. And so I think I think I learned a lot and it was a very broad canvas of the world of projects and clients. You found yourself back on the next presidential for the last six months for Hillary. Tell me about your role there and and how was that different? Yeah, it's interesting to think about the ways in which the Clinton and Obama campaigns differed, both in terms of my role, the strategy, and I guess you could call it the tenor of the campaign. Barack Obama is a singularly inspiring figure, particularly among people of my generation. And I think in 2012, the level of shared commitment, not just to the campaign, but the man and the candidate was so total and unified. And I felt, although it's important to remember that I was 21 and this was my first job, that there was such a a feeling of hope and determination and duty and joy in, in the Obama campaign. There was a lot of that in the Clinton campaign, but things were different. Politics had changed. Our opponent was now Donald Trump. The rules of the game seemed to have changed. I think I remember being almost constantly aghast at the attacks that were being launched. And the second thing that I think differentiated the campaigns in some ways is that in the Clinton campaign, I felt internally there was a more widespread presumption of victory. Even though Obama ended up beating Romney fairly handily, and obviously Clinton narrowly lost to Trump. Um, So that colored the campaign as well. I think in some ways you could argue that we were playing not to lose a little bit. And obviously things shifted pretty dramatically in the last uh, one to two weeks of the campaign for a variety of factors. Comey letter. Yeah, the Comey letter. I I interviewed James Comey on my podcast about 18 months ago, which was a very interesting experience. And it was interesting to explore that period of history in which he clearly played such a defining and and influential role and, and get a better sense of how he thinks about it. So those are some of the ways in which the campaign dynamics were different. And then in terms of my role on the Clinton campaign, I was focused more on communication work, speech writing, um, and project management versus the more purely digital content and, and social media side of things. How many people are helping write speeches on, on that campaign? Like you're one of how many? It's a good question. I'd say the core team is 10 to 20, although there's a fairly small circle of lead speech writers, of which I was not a part. I was primarily writing for surrogates, you know, so I wasn't writing Clinton's DNC speech or, or anything like that. But it's an interesting challenge and opportunity to write for someone who is trying to appeal to a broad audience while staying on message as defined by the candidate and campaign and also constrained by so many exogenous factors, her history, her gender, her her relationship to her husband, her relationship to Donald Trump. Um, So I think I learned a lot. And I think in retrospect, I'm not sure the campaign realized the extent to which our political culture had changed so that things that might have broken through in the past were just going to get lost in the noise, particularly when they were being compared 
against such salacious, entertaining, twisted narratives. But yes, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I should just say again that I was such a full supporter of Secretary Clinton. I think she would have been a, a fabulous president, even if she was weaker in some respects than Obama as a, a candidate. I think that it would have been such a remarkable feat to get her elected and falling short so narrowly was such a, a painful experience for so many. Yeah, it was uh, really quite heartbreaking and quite a calamity. Where were you election night and how did you experience that that hour, that, that evening, that night? Hmm. So I was dispatched to Utah, to Salt Lake City, to be the Utah digital director for the last three weeks of the campaign. Obviously, in retrospect, it may have made more sense to deploy staff to Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, rather than Utah. There was Utah was weird. Utah was weird. I mean, Evan McMullen was running these resource deployment allocation decisions were being made at a time three to four weeks before the election when the polls were showing that Hillary had a chance to break into new states like Georgia and Arizona and and probably Utah. And so I was in the Beehive State for the final three weeks of the campaign, which was a fascinating experience. Uh, Utah is such an interesting and, and rich state. The history, the culture, the the LDS community, the you know surprisingly strong progressive community, the interesting scrambling of of politics and ideology that that takes place there that you don't see elsewhere. And so it was really fascinating to sort of be navigating those cross currents and and trying to win the state. So all of that is to say, I was in a hotel room in Salt Lake City the night of the election and. You know, it was sort of a, a sinking feeling and, and a surreal feeling. I ended up retreating into a bottle of whiskey. And then I remember the next morning, you know, waking up and being like, did that, did that happen? <laughs> and then turning on the TV and watching Secretary Clinton's concession speech, which, again, just reinforces how much of a true patriot and public servant she is that, you know, she she was really putting fidelity to the the constitution even though of course there were plenty of democrats in the wake of the election who challenged the legitimacy of it and you know some of her comments in the wake of the election one could argue were grievance touched but when it push came to shove and history was watching you know she she stood up strong and and conceded unlike trump in 2020, obviously. Yeah. And even unlike him in 2016, where he was in the run up to the end saying he probably wouldn't accept the results the same way he sort of did the whole fall. Which I think is a very crafty strategy. Crafty and classless. Well, and and wrong. It's sort of just the constant pushing of the Overton window. Of every window. It's very effective. It's very effective. Shamelessness is such an asset in politics. It's broadly used, but he he set new records. Agreed. It appears that you went out as a consultant on your own doing communications subsequent to that campaign. Tell me about that experience and where that's led you. Yeah, well, after 2016, I was, in addition to being somewhat devastated. And also, I I very much remember having a feeling of, oh, wow, this is not the country I thought I lived in. And obviously, in retrospect, a big part of that was that I was in a bubble. Uh, Like so many elite progressives in the coast, you know, even if intellectually, they understand they're in a bubble, it's hard to, to parse how that affects how you understand reality. You know, for me, just growing up in New York City, two liberal parents, vast majority of my friends being liberal and then working in democratic politics and obviously not having a chance to travel the country that much. Just the thought that Trump could win was so incomprehensible to me in some ways. So after the campaign, I was, you know, obviously experiencing various negative emotions, but I was also unemployed 
So I I did some traveling in in Asia actually to get away from the country and not be checking Twitter and <laughs> reading the accounts of you know the cabinet appointments and whatnot. And then when I came back to New York, I was uh, yeah just open to taking on new projects and trying to help find stuff to do, business projects, volunteering, um, and that's actually when I stumbled upon Braver Angels and I started working as a volunteer because I thought the initial model was, was so interesting. Applying family therapy to politics. There's an idea. When did you come on full-time or are you full-time with Braver Angels? I am full-time and I have been full-time since June of 2017. But in the couple months leading up to that, I was, you know, just volunteering, helping out, trying to help the organization become an organization, move from an idea model to, you know, an organization with a website and a Facebook and, you know, reaching out to press, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of ways in this, which this is a partisan podcast, but I've also interviewed a lot of people who, who are working to better the democracy and doing that in nonpartisan ways or bipartisan ways including people in your space, I would say, like uh, living room conversations or spaceship media, or uh, there's a, a variety of people who are tr- who are working pretty hard to bridge the divide in various ways. And it's a super challenge right now. It's actually not going your way, probably, I, I think, by, by most reasonable measures. But tell me about the founding story for Braver Angels, which I think started with a slightly different name. What was the vision and how does that continue forward? Sure. Well, yes, originally we were we were named Better Angels. Like Lincoln's speech. Yes, Lincoln's first inaugural in which he called upon Americans to summon the better angels of their nature. Obviously, he was addressing a, a nation on the brink of, of civil war. And, you know, we know what happened soon after that speech. But that phrase has come to symbolize a style of politics that reaches for our highest ideals and puts country over party. Let's work together for the common good. And it's a uniquely American phrase. Most people recognize the legacy of Abraham Lincoln, and and it's hard to quibble with. So I thought it, it was a good name for us. We eventually changed our name last year, uh, partially due to a trademark dispute with another organization, but also because we felt that the notion of of courage and bravery were particularly needed to do this work now. Sometimes when people think about depolarization work, they think about something that's gentle or milk toast or touchy-feely or focus on politeness. And those things are important. I mean, certainly compassion, empathy, respect, all necessary to do this work. But the missing ingredient in some ways is courage and bravery because it's difficult, it's painful, not just to engage with people whose views you might find harmful, but also to withstand the judgment that you're inevitably going to get from your fellow progressives or your fellow conservatives who question your integrity and are the enforcers of tribal orthodoxy. Tell me more about about the, the founder and how things got going. Sure. Well, the founder of Braver Than Better Angels, my boss, also a mentor of mine, David Blankenhorn, I mean, if David were here, he could tell you more about his story. But in a nutshell, he is from Mississippi, grew up, uh, I think, with a fairly conservative upbringing, uh, went to Harvard, was a liberal community organizer and activist for a number of years. My understanding is became interested in issues of civil society and family structure he founded a think tank, uh, which was generally considered a center-right think tank called the Institute for American Values, which did a lot of work in those two areas. But David became particularly invested in and known for his stance on 
then called the gay marriage issue, uh, you know, now more commonly referred to as, uh, you know, marriage equality. But he was opposed to same-sex marriage and was one of the leading, you know, public intellectuals who was making arguments against it and, and why it would be bad for America and why it would it be bad for families. Um, and so he was, he was certainly a boogeyman on the left. And then he changed his mind. He changed his mind as a matter of conscience and a matter of reflection, which you don't see that much anymore. He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 2012, publicly reversing himself. And overnight became a boogeyman on the right. <laughs> uh, you know, his his think tank lost a lot of its funding and, and kind of went under. And, you know, he's a unique figure in that he, he's just managed to royally piss off both sides. But I think he's fundamentally someone who feels this mission in his bones, you know, from someone who grew up in Mississippi, but he can speak the language of both sides. He understands the pain points of both sides. And he's been viciously viciously attacked by both sides, you know, called evil, uh, hateful, cowardly, pathetic, you know what I mean? And, and, and so I think after that, he had a sort of a, a period of real, uh, you know, soul searching his, his, his organization essentially collapsed. And I think he's always been interested in, in bringing the two sides together and building bridges and illuminating the commonalities that do exist clarifying the disagreements i think clarifying disagreements is such a helpful part of depolarization makes everyone feel better makes it easier to work together establishes a shared reality to the extent possible and so better angels was was his brainchild but it really came into practice so the original model was designed by dr bill doherty who's a professor at the University of Minnesota and one of the nation's foremost marriage and family therapists. He works specifically with couples who are on the brink of divorce, mired in high conflict, and looking for ways to communicate and save their marriage, essentially. So he applied techniques and principles that he had seen work in his own work with couples to political conflict and designed a series of exercises that comprised our first workshop, the red-blue workshop, which basically brings together an even number of reds and blues as we call them, conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats in a community, normally five to eight folks on each side. It's a moderated in-person initially workshop. And the exercises are designed to help the two sides talk and listen to better understand each other's perspectives beyond stereotypes, clarify the very real and deep disagreements that divide us, build trust, reduce stereotype thinking, build relationships, illuminate the common values that do exist, and really build relationships that over time built a larger movement, a citizens movement of reds and blues working together. But that first workshop was how the organization got started. And it was a entryway into a new political culture that we are seeking to spread across the land. How did he do as a marriage counselor? Did he hold marriages together or did a bunch of them fall apart anyway? That would be a good question for Bill. <laughs> I think he's regarded as a very successful therapist. Um, yeah. You know, not every couple should stay together. And maybe not every country, but, you know, we kind of hope this one will. Yes, although a civic divorce in America would probably mean a civil war. Well, the problem is we're, it's not regional. It's, you know, it's neighborhood by neighborhood or suburb and city or it would be impossible. 
Exactly. So we can't get a civic divorce. We have to live together. How do we want to do it? When you came on board, what was happening? Like how far along was the enterprise as an enterprise? The organization had done two workshops. One was in South Lebanon, Ohio, which was filmed as part of a documentary we produced with the support of Peter Yarrow, of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Puff the Magic Dragon fame. So we'd done two workshops at that time, but we had this sizzle reel, this video product that highlighted the power of the work. We raised a little bit of money to fund a bus tour, at which point I was initially brought on to run communications and digital for the bus tour. We rented a large tour bus to fulfill all of our childhood rock star or professional athlete dreams. Or campaign dreams. Yes. Well, yes. And our bus driver with whom I established a friendship had been a bus driver for several national political campaigns, including John Kerry, Newt Gingrich, John Boehner. Uh, he had stories about all of them, which I will not share here. Darn it. But we, we took the bus to 10 states around the country um, doing red-blue workshops, the participants of which were all recruited by volunteers who we were able to come in contact with initially, primarily through our first piece of media, which was a feature on NPR. And those workshops planted the seeds for what would become uh, Braver Angels Alliances, roughly even number of reds and blues in a community who form an alliance, continue to meet on an ongoing basis, volunteer, spread the word, spread the mission, spread the gospel, spread the work. That was the model decentralized organizing movement. We then added on programming, partnerships with college campuses, media, Braver Angels Media was born to be a media network that could model an alternative to the partisan media complex and show what does it actually look like in the media space when people come together uh, to debate with vigor, but not vitriol, with, with passion, but also with patience. Do you feel like you're tilting at windmills? Do you feel like you are having progress? Absolutely. I mean, to extend the the wind metaphor, the headwinds are stiff. But, you know, we've been very successful uh, in terms of, of growth. Um, we have 16,000 members nationwide, uh, almost 100 local alliances. So insofar as we've been able to bring positive change to people's lives, I think we've made an impact. Uh, you know, the scale of the problem we're seeking to address is, is monumental. We've tested and demonstrated our model. You know, we've done a, a fairly rigorous evaluation program to evaluate people's feelings before and after our programming. So it's don't just take our word for it. There's pretty striking data, which I can send to you, maybe you can include with this podcast that sort of demonstrates a fairly dramatic reduction in, uh, you know, what scholars call affective polarization, which is the belief that my political opponent is not only wrong, but is evil. And I harbor ill will toward them. Our workshop is very effective in terms of reducing that and, and building understanding. I've spent a lot of time telling people that Trump supporters are not evil, that they have a different lens. And it's sometimes it's a, it's a hard slog, especially when I think that some of the people around Trump or Trump himself, you know, are not far short of evil. Yes, it's certainly challenging. And the Trump era crystallized so many of the divides that were already there. But it also meant that <laughs> there was a, a big audience for what we were doing. We didn't have to convince everyone that this was a problem. And then, of course, last year in the pandemic, all of a sudden, we brought our work online. Um, but we had a captive audience. Everyone was stuck at home with nothing to do but freak out over Donald Trump. So it was a pretty light lift to get them to tune into our events. So what, what advice do you have for regular people as a result of doing this for a while and seeing uh, how they respond? They're 
stuck in a in a polarized world what what advice do you have for them yeah i'm glad you asked about regular people because that's where this work starts i think so many of us follow national politics very closely and it's almost become a hobby or a sick addiction and we forget that the work of politics the work of citizenship the work of relationship just starts within yourself within your own relationships within your family within your community and so I think it's worth taking a step back and thinking about what you want out of your life, really. I mean, politics has become such a dominant animating force in our culture, but also in our identities. And it's having deleterious effects on our mental health, our social fabric, and obviously our ability to make progress on a variety of issues. So I think it starts with relationships. It's not for everyone, you know? I think a lot of people, they don't want to have relationships with people they feel like don't share their values. And that's understandable. I think there are, for the vast majority of Americans, shared values that do exist. They oftentimes express themselves in, in different ways. But the way to reveal those is not through rhetoric or rationalization or intellectualism, but through experience and emotion. Uh, and that's what is surfaced in relationship. Just to ask that question, maybe again, what, what do you advise people to do? Do you basically reach out to people different than them? What are you saying at bottom an average person should do to reduce polarization? I think it depends on... Uh, who the person is. I mean, if if, if you're, for example, in a, a politically divided romantic relationship, uh, that's maybe the most urgent and pressing polarization you're facing. Or if you're in a politically divided workplace or town, that's different than if you're a progressive in New York City who can go 18 months without ever talking to a Trump supporter. It starts with reframing how we treat and relate with people with whom we disagree politically. We've been conditioned to see political engagement as a zero-sum game, which Trump took full advantage of in terms of enforcing a dynamic in which you either dominate or submit. This makes political conversations very counterproductive because people are trying to change the other person's mind or defend their position or even more defend their identity. But by reframing these conversations as an opportunity to listen and be heard, that's how you build trust. And ultimately, I believe if your goal is to advocate or be an activist or persuade, it's a more effective way of uh, coalition building than alienating people who might otherwise be inclined to agree with you, but because of polarization, drift further and further away. So I guess in sum, it depends on what your goals are. One good way is to go to our website, sign up for an event, see what you think. It's not for everyone, but people are, oftentimes skeptics are, at least they come away with like, okay, these people are onto something. Well, maybe you can talk, uh, an acquaintance who's on the other side of the divide into joining with you. I have in mind a guy I know who's a plumber in Vermont who's done some work for us, who's always posting on Facebook pro-Trump stuff that I think is ludicrous and can't really abide. It seems like a very, very decent human being when I interact with him. And I've defended him on Facebook a couple times when I've gotten into something with him and someone on my side landed on him, you know, unfairly, we have to get along with, with our neighbors and, and we're all citizens of the same country. Yeah. And everything we do at Brave Angels to the extent we can is red blue together. It's the Brave Angels rule from every level of leadership to, you know, from the board of directors to, staff to the the participants in our red blue workshops it's 50 50 split and so i think coming to an event with 
your political opposite is something we love to see. And in terms of deepening engagement with the organization, if you want to start an alliance, if you want to organize a workshop, the first thing you need to do is find a counterpart. If you're a blue, you need to find a red and vice versa, and then you do it together. And so all of our alliances are led by a red and blue. All of our state coordinators are balanced, et cetera, et cetera. What's been the hardest or most difficult thing that you've run across? I personally found a lot of the work in the Trump era to be difficult because of the style of politics that Trump represents. In my view, I found to be antithetical to a lot of our values. Regardless of whether you support or oppose Trump, it's it's hard to disagree with the fact that he was divisive and, and purposefully so. We really wanted to engage Trump supporters as much as possible, and I think we were fairly successful in, in doing that. But it was important to keep in mind the dynamics that the president was enforcing because they ran counter to what we wanted to do. But we were not in a position to be calling out President Trump and alienating the people that we want to reach on the right, just as we don't want to be in a position of calling out cancel culture and alienating folks on the social justice left. Essentially, we don't want to be taking positions but we want our people to be taking positions. We don't want people to feel like they need to check their partisanship at the door. Partisanship is good. It's what the country's built on. We need competition in the marketplace of ideas, but we need to play on the field, not try to blow up each other's tour buses, so to speak. One of the inescapable aspects of politics now is the sort of fringe QAnon, people that are fairly detached from reality, particularly on the far right, how do you deal with them given that they are out there and in growing numbers? I think it all comes down to trust. You know, the reason people believe in QAnon is not because they're stupid, it's because they've lost trust in mainstream sources of information, they've lost trust in institutions and they've lost trust in one another. And so by building relationships, by scaling that work, by building social trust, that's how you can begin to restore a shared epistemology. But by trying to, you know, mock someone or even try to show them why they're wrong, it's ultimately going to backfire. Do you see anything problematic about your approach how do you view the general angle that you're taking to try to solve this problem? I think people have different lanes and I think we are fulfilling an important role because we have established a structure and container that allows for good faith engagement across a vast gulf of difference. And I don't think anyone else in the country is, is doing that. I think other people have other roles to fill in terms of fighting for what they believe is right. And I've come out of political campaigns and, you know, sometimes what makes sense strategically as a political operative is not what makes sense as a, a depolarizer. But I also want personally Democrats to be able to win elections. So occasionally those things are intention, but I think people need to play to their strengths and People need to think about how they can serve the country as best they know how. It feels to me like Biden has brought the temperature down a lot, the way he's governing, just his personality and, and some of the choices, although maybe not all of the policy positions. But what would you like to see out of a presidency, this one or subsequent ones, to help depolarize? Yeah, I've been very pleased with Biden's approach. One, I just like how boring he is compared to the last four years. I think it's been a welcome respite. I also think that he truly does believe in the better angels of our nature. I mean, that is Joe Biden. I thought it was Obama, too. Obama's speeches constantly, if you read them, they could be taken off our website. 
I think uh, the fact that Joe Biden is a, a white man with a long history of Senate bipartisanship comedy, I think has helped him. It seems like the the vitriol uh, uh, directed at Joe Biden specifically is, is seems less intense as the vitriol that was directed at Barack Obama. And it doesn't stick as much. It doesn't stick as much. And I think that Biden and his team have been smart to not really engage. You know, the culture war is, is going to continue to bubble. And that's where the Republican Party is is focused. I, I don't see much of a policy agenda at all. It's it's very identitarian. It's interesting. The last thing I'll say is I think where a lot of the divide is going right now is about fundamental questions of democracy and voting and franchise. Both the majority of liberals and conservatives, I believe have faith in democracy and want to protect democracy. And I think that a lot of Republicans who are concerned about voter fraud are concerned because they're buying into a myth that has been perpetrated by uh, cynical political leaders. But a lot of them are making a good faith attempt to preserve voter integrity because they care about democracy, not because they want to undermine democracy. Well, I mean, it's interesting in our country that in order to do an anti-democratic thing, you you still clothe it in democratic principles. Exactly. Well, we can we can take heart in that. Yeah. But what we're sort trying of. to do is is um, we want to lean into the voting issue and we want to engage the two most disaffected groups in the United States, one of which arguably is, you know, working class, largely white conservatives who voted for Trump. And the other is social justice folks on the left and people of color, two groups that are very mistrustful of the system, and both of whom are accusing each other of seeking to undermine our democracy for partisan gain. Uh, but both of whom, for the most part, are motivated by uh, a commitment to democracy, despite the uh, cynical machinations of elites who I would argue right now are very much concentrated in, in the Republican Party. Um, but we want to see if we can make progress on that issue so that we can restore trust in our elections across the board. You earlier referenced an interview you had with Comey on your podcast. Can you tell me about why you started a podcast and what sort of people are on it? And tell me a little about what you're up to there. Sure. Well, part of the, the podcast in some ways is one of the, you know, flagship initiatives or vehicles of, of Braver Angels Media. And the goal, again, was to try to establish and model uh, a more constructive form of cross-partisan discourse. Um, so one thing we've sought to do is, is bring together folks who are very disagreed and have uh, a vigorous debate, but one in which we can try to you know, achieve disagreement. So we can actually have an accurate disagreement rather than an exaggerated or caricatured uh, disagreement or have a conversation where the goal is to, you know, explain and, and try to make your case, but not to just, you know, humiliate the other person, which is so much of what we see. We either see people talking to people they agree with or just lobbing shots across the battlefield, but mainly for the performative value of their own audience. We saw a vacuum there, and the podcast is one place we do that. Um, we also invite on interesting guests to talk about this issue and to try to challenge them to wrestle with depolarization, because there's a lot of folks across the spectrum who have partisan interests, but also understand some of the deeper problems of polarization not necessarily when it comes to political parties or political coalitions, but when it comes to ordinary people whose relationships and mental health is being destroyed by the rancor that is generated 
by these dynamics. Occasionally when I'm interviewing someone, their story is very intense or for some reason, it's a very good interview. I just feel it palpably. You know, I just, I'm like in this moment, like all my senses are alert in the interview. You've probably had that same feeling. What, what are a couple examples, if, if any come to mind of like part of a podcast where something just came to the level of really feeling meaningful? Mm, that's a great question. So we recently did a podcast and the guests were all Braver Angels leaders. And the subject was to explore why we decided to host a debate on voter fraud, voter suppression, and the 2020 election. We got a lot of criticism from liberals who said, you know, you're providing a platform to spread the big lie. You know, you're creating a false equivalence. You're letting people get up there and spew disinformation. There was internal dissension within Braver Angels about whether to hold this debate. And so we had a podcast that was essentially a window into that discussion to showcase the way in which we work through issues, the way in which we struggle with the same tensions uh, that all sorts of people who are depolarization curious might. And it was a very raw and, and powerful conversation. And I think also, you know, underlines one of the special things about Braver Angels, which is that we are constantly striving at least to do internally what we're asking the country to do. And that's a, a question of, of culture and relationships and how you engage these issues. So I thought that was a really interesting podcast to participate in. And I think our audience really valued it. Um, Cause again, I don't think a lot of organizations would, would do that. It's sort of a meta conversation. So that one was really interesting. I'd encourage folks to, to check it out. I did a couple podcasts recently with Tristan Harris of the social dilemma, the former Google design ethicist who now leads the Center for Humane Technology and is, is one of the country's foremost activists in terms of pressuring big tech to think more deeply about reforms that would design a digital architecture that can bring us together rather than drive us apart. And yeah, I've done all sorts of interviews. I talked to Ezra Klein a few years ago. I think he's a really smart thinker on this issue. And most recently, I talked to a writer named Amanda Ripley, who's just written a book called High Conflict, in which she looked at a series of intractable and violent conflicts across the world from uh, FARC in Colombia to gang violence in Chicago. And I think has drawn some really innovative and powerful insights. And so we had a conversation about how those could be applied to a U.S. political context. Um, so that was definitely a sense alighting conversation for me as well. Who would you love to have on that you haven't been able to so far? Mm, I'd love to get Barack Obama either solo or with uh, George W. Bush. So if you're out there listening, you know, open door. I'm confident he listens to all of mine, all <laughs> yeah. 600 plus episodes. Um, <laughs> do you have any advice to fellow podcasters about what you think works well to make a good podcast? I think preparation, which I often don't do, is helpful. I think <laughs> production quality, which I don't often have the best, is, is useful. Um, You're definitely no. selling me on yours, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think I'm always thinking critically about what we could do better. It's always possible to raise one's game, but. Totally. And I think it's been hard uh, during the pandemic, you know, because everyone's sort of improvising at home. Um, but I think having a really clear uh, lens and angle and purpose for your podcast so that it's a focused conversation is useful because then people should know why they're coming to your podcast versus any other podcast. What's the unique value proposition? What do they get with you guys that you can't get anywhere else? So what questions should I have asked you that I have not? Mm. Wow. What questions should you have asked me? Well, it could be interesting to ask me about how it's been working with conservatives 
for the first time in my life over the past four years. How has that been for you? It's been great. (laughs) It's been great. I mean, I just feel like I'm less polarized. I, I don't know if my views have changed on a lot of core issues. Like I'm still pretty fairly progressive on a lot of issues, but I think I have a better understanding of uh, human nature and just more close relationships with people I disagree with, which is, is very interesting. And I think I've been able to bring some of the interpersonal uh, and communication skills that uh, we've developed and teach at Bray Rangels into my personal relationships, which has been really interesting. Sometimes my friends feel like I'm psychoanalyzing them, which is probably pretty annoying. Uh, I, I certainly enjoy it. Um, but it, it is powerful to, to build relationships with people that you might have previously demonized because of stereotypes. It's a very powerful thing. I think some of the more interesting conversations I've had on my podcast have been with the anti-Trump Republicans who don't share exactly the same values or certainly policy opinions, but they have something different to say than a lot of the people that I talk to. So it seems new and valuable and I kind of, you know, pay more attention for, for the moment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's fairly boring to talk to someone that you agree with on everything. Conflict is healthy so long as the approach is smart and structured and designed to make progress through conflict rather than have conflict drive drive uh, destruction. Do you think that this experience you've had with Braver Angels has taken you on a path away from partisanship for good? Do you see yourself going back into the game on the partisan side? What's the future for you, given what your experience has been here? That's a good question. And one, you know, that I'm still thinking about, I think I've been privileged to now be in a position where I'm making impact in a field where there's not that many people working on it compared to partisanship. But I would certainly consider going back to work on a campaign or work in government if I was working for someone who I believed in. The mission is making a positive difference. And there are many ways to do that, both in and outside of partisan politics. What do you think the future is for Braver Angels as an organization? Where do you see this going? Where would you like to see it go? It'd be cool if in 50 years, people look back on Braver Angels as like the spark of something akin to the civil rights movement to change politics for the better in the United States and to make a more positive social culture in the United States that raises the standard of living, that helps people work together where they do agree, and ultimately that staves off violence. A lot of the kind of philosophical guidelines for Braver Angels are drawn from the nonviolent movement. And we want to carry on in that tradition. And so I think we want to help lead a movement. It's not just Braver Angels as an organization. It's never going to be any one organization. But can we create a big enough grassroots groundswell that we can affect the political class? Can we depolarize institutions across media, academia, politics create a virtuous cycle by which we change norms and incentives. And that's how you ultimately create lasting social change. Do you think about running for office yourself? I strongly doubt it, but I would never say never. If you did, would you run on a speech that said, this is not a red America, this is not a blue America? This is the United States of America. I would try to be a unifier. (laughs) And I think, you know, things change so quickly. Like, who knows where the Republican Party would be in 10 years? Yeah. I mean. Impossible to tell. So. I sure hope it's not worse. 
Me too. <laughs> Kieran, it's been really an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? I would just say that I think you're a really good interviewer and you asked, uh, you know, deep probing personal questions, which I think is a good way to draw out how someone really feels rather than some of the more superficial exchanges we see on podcasts these days. Well, I feel very flattered by that comment and I'm definitely going to check out some of your episodes and catch up with you as well. Cool. That was Kieran O'Connor. He's at BraverAngels.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.